Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Phyllis Bennis, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and author who examines the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza for Palestinian civilians and the Biden administration's ineffectual response to the carnage. Hillary Flint, co-founder of the group, Unity Council for the East Palestine-Ohio train derailment, who talks about the toxic chemical spill one year later and the lack of progress in providing help to local residents. And Amira Matar, counsel with the group Free Speech for People, who assesses the Supreme Court's recent hearing on Colorado's removal of Donald Trump from the state ballot that ignored his role as an insurrectionist. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In early January, an investigation exposed a secret plan by Germany's far-right party, Alternative for Germany, or AFD, to carry out a mass deportation of asylum seekers, non-Germans with residency rights, and non-assimilated German citizens. According to The Nation magazine, the scheme was similar to a 1940 plan by Adolf Hitler to deport 4 million Jews to Madagascar. The AFD gained popularity a decade ago with the rise of an anti-immigrant movement after one and a half million asylum seekers from the Middle East entered Germany. AFD won seats in Parliament for the first time in 2017, and polls have found that the far-right party was leading in some eastern German state elections scheduled for September. News of the AFD's deportation meeting led to mass protests of hundreds of thousands of people across Germany demanding that the AFD be banned. Over 1.5 million people have also signed a petition calling on German authorities to strip extremist AFD Thuringia State Party leader Bjorn Hawk of his right to vote and run for elected office. In the midst of a record-breaking dry-hot summer driven by climate change and the El Nino effect, deadly wildfires broke out in Chile and Colombia. A huge wildfire engulfed the hills overlooking Chile's popular coastal resort town of Viña del Mar on the Pacific Ocean, killing 131 people. During a weekend of brutal fires in early February, 400 homes were destroyed and elderly residents died because they couldn't escape. Hundreds are still missing. A few days earlier, wildfires also tore through the mountains surrounding Bogota, as the South American nation experienced its hottest January in 30 years. Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, requested international help to prevent the spread of wildfires from the Andes Mountains towards the Pacific coast and the Amazon region. In the colonial city of Honda, temperatures reached 111 degrees Fahrenheit, turning savannas and rainforests in the country into a tinderbox. Wildfires also broke out in Venezuela and Ecuador. In recent years, wildfires have also consumed vast sections of Brazil's Amazon rainforest. 
Asbestos victims, their families, and their attorneys claim that the Coke Industries-owned company, Georgia Pacific, has denied them compensation with legal maneuvers for nearly two decades. Meanwhile, the Koch brothers' right-wing political network continues to lobby state legislatures to protect companies facing asbestos-related claims and to limit payouts to victims. Workers at Georgia Pacific, a paper and building products company, have been locked in a years-long battle over claims that asbestos in the company's products caused fatal cancers. The Guardian reports that as Coke Industries faced over 60,000 asbestos lawsuits, the company orchestrated a legal move known as the Texas Two-Step, splitting the corporation into two entities. The maneuver kept all profitable assets in Georgia Pacific while transferring its asbestos liabilities into another Coke-owned company, Bestwall LLC. Bestwall then declared bankruptcy in 2017, the year it stopped paying out victims' claims. Since 2022, Coke Industries has profited from $2.5 billion in dividends from Georgia Pacific. Yet asbestos claims by victims remain in legal limbo. In late 2023, lawyers for victims who died from incurable cancer called the Texas two-step maneuver a roadmap for solvent corporations to abuse the bankruptcy system. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Since the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack that killed 1,200 Israelis and kidnapped 240 hostages brought back to Gaza, the Israeli military's retaliatory airstrikes and ground offensive has killed more than 28,000 Palestinians, 70% of those women and children. Some 85% of Gaza's 2.3 million residents are now homeless after Israel's destruction of countless homes and apartment buildings as well as most civilian infrastructure, including hospitals, schools, universities, mosques, and churches. As more than one million Palestinians have been forced to evacuate to the southern Gaza city of Rafah on the Egyptian border, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has announced his military will soon launch an offensive on this overcrowded enclave, teeming with desperate, starving refugees. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that an Israeli attack on Rafah would result in a further slaughter of civilians, as he called for renewed talks to reach a ceasefire after negotiations to reach a 40-day truce failed last week. Egypt has threatened to effectively suspend their nation's landmark 1979 peace treaty with Israel if Netanyahu launches his planned military assault on Rafah. Your reporter spoke with Phyllis Bennis, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, author and international advisor to the group Jewish Voice for Peace. Here she talks about the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, the Biden administration's ineffectual response, and Egypt's threat to tear up their 40-year peace treaty with Israel. This is a human catastrophe. This is a genocide that is taking place 
in real time in front of our eyes. We're seeing it every day, hour by hour, on our phones, on our computers, on our screens, on our televisions. We're hearing it on the radio. We're hearing it on everywhere we go. This is not any kind of situation where anyone can say, I didn't know. In recent days, President Biden and his administration look like they're moving at least rhetorically to distance themselves from what uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is doing and planning in this attack in Rafah that international aid agencies say would be a catastrophe. Joe Biden, in a, a hastily called press conference on a whole other issue, did say he felt that the Israeli response in this war has been, quote unquote, over the top. But yet the administration has taken no concrete action to counter or moderate the Israeli government's collective punishment of Palestinians in Gaza that have now killed more than 28,000 people. At least we don't know of what actions they've taken, and we haven't seen any results in Gaza itself. What do you make of the Biden administration's finally, at least in words, seeking to distance themselves? Well, I think it's a reflection, Scott, of the depth and breadth of the kinds of protests that we've seen exploding across this country and indeed around the world, but most explicitly in terms of the impact on the Biden administration, the level of opposition in this country, the rage at the fact that U.S. tax dollars, the name of the people of the U.S., makes us all complicit in these crimes, in this crime, the ultimate crime of genocide. And people are raging. Massive protests in the street. We're seeing rabbis getting themselves arrested in the halls of Congress. Organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace that I work with is, that has carried out occupations of Grand Central Station in New York and the, the island where the Statue of Liberty is. Uh, across the country in small towns, there's protests going on on a daily basis. Unions, five of the biggest unions in the countries, have signed on to statements calling for a ceasefire. The word ceasefire is on the lips of everyone in this country. Eighty percent of Democrats say they want an immediate ceasefire. Sixty-seven percent of all the voters in this country say they want an immediate ceasefire. And yet, as you say, despite some changes in language, the actions of the Biden administration make it still complicit in the Israeli genocide. And with what is being threatened in Rafah, in this part of the, the southern tip of Gaza, where the demand of the U.S. is you shouldn't carry out a military attack there unless you have a viable plan underway to protect the Palestinian population, to protect civilians. Well, there is no way to protect civilians. There's nowhere for them to go. So the question is, is this really an effort by Israel to make good on the longstanding, generations-old claim of some within the Zionist movement who say that what they have always wanted to do is get rid of the Palestinian population, to make it a land without a people for the Jewish population of settlers who were the people without a land after the, after the Holocaust? Is that what this is about? This is a long-standing claim, a public claim by many in the pre-state Zionist movement and later as the state was created by governments of the state, by political parties. That's what this looks like. But there is no way to protect a civilian population. Are they going to push people into the Sinai Desert and make them refugees once again in another country that does not want them and then refuse again to allow them back into Gaza where their homes have been for the last 55 years? Phyllis, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I did want to ask you uh, this. 
In response to Israel's planned attack on Rafah, crowded with over a million Palestinian refugees from the other parts of Gaza where the war has gone on and destroyed much of that territory, Egypt is now threatening to effectively suspend their 1979 peace treaty with Israel. How significant is this threat from Cairo? It would reopen the entire sort of regional politics uh, in a very serious way. We have to be clear, though, Egypt is completely dependent on the United States for aid money, for debt relief, for, for military support, for arms. You know, until the Ukraine war, after Israel, Egypt was the largest recipient of U.S. military aid. It was about $1.2 billion a year, a lot of money. And if that is going to be put in jeopardy, that would change everything. But I think we have to be clear that pressure from the United States, if it came right now, the U.S. is telling Israel, don't do this. Don't push the population out into, into Egypt. If the U.S. changed its position and began to put a lot of pressure on Egypt, I don't think we could assume that there would not be a shift in the Egyptian position and a new, uh, a surprising willingness that we would see to do exactly what they say right now they will not do. So the pressure has to remain from the people of Egypt on its government and for us on our government here. The pressure for a ceasefire, the pressure to stop sending the weapons to Israel that is enabling a genocide. We have to stop allowing our government to be complicit in our name in a genocide that is happening in real time in front of our eyes as we speak. That was Phyllis Bennis, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and author of the book, Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, a Primer. Find more analysis and commentary on the ongoing carnage in Gaza by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. February 3rd marked the one-year anniversary of the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, near the Pennsylvania border. Toxic and carcinogenic chemicals were released when the cars jumped the track, and more escaped when the railroad intentionally blew up five tankers full of vinyl chloride in a controlled burn that the railroad said averted a potentially more dangerous explosion. Despite assurances from state and federal officials that the housing in town and the surrounding area was safe, many residents are still experiencing health impacts and fear contracting cancer and other serious ailments as time goes on. President Biden is scheduled to visit East Palestine on February 16th. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Hillary Flint, who lives in a Pennsylvania town four miles from East Palestine. She works with many local activist groups and co-founded the Unity Council for East Palestine train derailment. Here she talks about conditions residents are coping with one year after the toxic rail accident and the assistance they still need to deal with ongoing health impacts. So I think what people don't necessarily realize is that what happened a year ago isn't over. Um, we're still very much in an active cleanup zone, so there are still millions of gallons of wastewater. There's still, you know, tons of soil in the area. And so while we're a year out, there really isn't a lot of progress, unfortunately. Um, so the community still doesn't have access to comprehensive health care. We still do not have indoor air testing. Our creeks are still contaminated and that cleanup is not even close to complete. So it's been a year, but we are nowhere near um, at the place where we need to be. 
is it the railroad that is responsible for all the cleanup? Is the federal government involved or, or any governmental entity? Yeah, I think in the beginning, the communities that were affected in Ohio and Pennsylvania were very much expecting that the government would step in and we would have the help that we needed. So we thought the Environmental Protection Agency would, you know, help us out. That didn't necessarily happen. Um, we thought our, you know, municipal or state government would help out. That didn't really happen. So after about a month of waiting for answers, you know, we started organizing as a community. So I helped start a group called Unity Council for the East Palestine Train Derailment. And we are just kind of the, the conduit for a lot of the different nonprofits coming in, a lot of the different research studies. So we're kind of that middle person between these outside agencies and the communities affected, um, kind of coordinating everything. There's been a great response from nonprofits. Clean Air Council helped get people indoor air purifiers. The organization I work for, Beaver County Marcellus Awareness Community, we're helping getting uh, filtered water pitchers out to homes. There's been everyday residents who stepped up. So there's a chiropractor in Darlington Township, PA, Dr. Chai, who was just getting bottled water for community members on an ongoing basis. Um, he's actually running for state representative right now. So it's it's really spewed a lot of activism from everyday community members. The chiropractor is running specifically as a result of this catastrophe and people's response to it. Yeah. So what our community experienced was just the help that we needed. We didn't get it. So there were different ways people responded to that. There was a woman, Misty Allison, who run for East Palestine mayor. And even though um, she was not able to beat the incumbent, she's still you know, very much involved in the local advocacy. We had everyday residents who started becoming watchdogs, and we call them our creek rangers. So they go down to the creeks, which are heavily polluted with benzene compounds, to get pictures and videos and take different orgs down to do some testing. So it's been very interesting to see how people that you know were never involved in this line of work really stepped up when the entities that exist didn't. I know a lot of health impacts would be, you know, probably if they develop would be, take a long time, but what has the community seen in terms of health impacts? A lot of the things that we experienced initially, we're still experiencing to this day. So upper respiratory infections, um, something that kind of feels like a sinus infection. So just constant runny nose, pressure in the head, migraines, dizziness itchy eyes, skin rashes. So those are really some of the things that have just continued to be a problem. We're having a lot of issues with bloody noses, both in children and adults. So for example, if I spend more than two days in a row at my home in Enid Valley, PA, I get a nosebleed and that nosebleed will continue every day that I'm there. The very serious health impacts I think could come later on down the road, but we still are having everyday health impacts even a year later. Wasn't benzene one of the chemicals that was released and, and that is a known carcinogen? Quite a few known carcinogens, many probable carcinogens. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of existing studies on combined toxic exposure. And that's one of the big problems here is that no one can tell us definitively if we're safe because the data that would help guide that just doesn't exist. So, you know, we're just over a year out and there are still things that we need. Number one, being a major disaster declaration. 
that was upgraded to a major disaster and it's sat on Biden's lap. And it would open up something such as Section 1881A of the Affordable Care Act, which would actually give every resident affected by the train derailment Medicare for life. You know, Medicare for life is very much the least that we can do to safeguard our community members. That was Hillary Flint, co-founder of the group, Unity Council for the East Palestine, Ohio, train derailment. Learn more about a petition calling for a federal disaster declaration in East Palestine and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As Donald Trump faces 91 felony counts in four different cases, including four criminal charges related to accusations that he sought to subvert American democracy by trying to overturn his 2020 election loss to Joe Biden, Colorado and Maine have disqualified Trump from appearing on state ballots under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, also known as the Insurrection Clause. Responding to Trump's appeal of the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling that barred him from appearing on that state's Republican primary ballot, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case, Trump v. Anderson, on February 8th. The questions asked by the justices during the hearing indicated general skepticism of allowing states to make their own decisions on disqualifying candidates from the ballot, both because of the effect such decisions could have on the outcome of a national election and the difficulty courts face in reviewing those decisions. Your reporter spoke with Amira Matar, counsel with the group Free Speech for People, which initiated lawsuits to keep Trump off the ballot in five states and supported Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington's successful Insurrectionist Clause lawsuit in Colorado. Here, Matar reviews the Supreme Court hearing, noting that questions from the justices conspicuously avoided dealing with a central issue, whether or not Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection and should be barred from holding any future public office. So we can't know for certain why the justices or how the justices would decide just by the nature of their questions. You know, these are experienced legal scholars, and they're going to ask really tough questions to anybody who's going to step up to the bench, and that's precisely what they saw. We saw that they were very concerned about whether states can or cannot do this. That was really where the bulk of questions lied. The other concern that they had was whether Section 3 includes the president so that it could apply to Donald Trump. And of course, Donald Trump's attorneys were claiming that because Section 3 does not specifically outline president, that that somehow is a reason why it shouldn't apply to Donald Trump. And that's really where the justices were asking tough questions on both sides. What we did not see, which is very interesting, was virtually no discussion whatsoever as to whether Trump had engaged in insurrection. It was as if it was kind of like the elephant in the room. They had maybe danced around it a little bit, but there was really very little discussion about what happened on January 6th, the details of what happened, what Trump did, did not do, and should have done. 
And so it, it's very interesting and then they didn't touch the issue whatsoever, but the courts that have reviewed the evidence and merits of this question, Maine and, and Colorado, have decided that Trump did incite insurrection and that he in fact did engage in insurrection for that reason he's disqualified. The Supreme Court didn't touch that. It really seemed, as you said, the elephant in the room that the justices didn't touch. There have been a lot of commentators that said the justices on the Supreme Court are looking for a quote-unquote off-ramp, not wanting to rule on the key issues in the Trump versus Anderson Colorado case, but trying to find some kind of loophole that would uh, give them a pass to not judge the validity of the charge that Donald Trump did engage in insurrection and did break his oath of office to uphold and protect the U.S. Constitution. That is that is the concern. I mean, this is too grave of an issue for it to rest on legal technicalities. And that's what we saw last week is, is really nitpicky, narrow conversations that don't really address what happened on January 6th, but rest on arguments that Trump's lawyers had put forth and that oftentimes didn't have historical backing or substantiation. The, the terms and the language of Section 3 is overwhelmingly broad and deliberately so. It's supposed to apply to any and all offices under the United States. And if we are to at all acknowledge that this would not include the highest office of the United States, the president, I think it would make a mockery of the Constitution. Thank you, Amira. I did want to ask you the big question here. If the Supreme Court guts Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, by choosing some off-ramp that really disables the ability of the U.S. government to prevent insurrectionists or people who want to overturn elections from running and holding office, what are the consequences for the country and democracy? If the events of January 6, 2021, all the, the violence that we saw, the lives that were lost on that day, if all of that doesn't amount to an insurrection, in which the chief of that insurrection is not disqualified for office. In fact, he can run for office again and be president again. Then it really begs the question, well, what else would this provision be used for? What would Section 3 ever apply to? It would make a, a mockery of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and its, its radical history of what it was intended to do was to keep oath-breaking insurrectionists out of office. And the fact that the Supreme Court really didn't engage with the evidence of it, of the record, as I said, is similar to kind of like the elephant in, in the room. So let's say Trump succeeds and actually wins the election and he becomes president again, there's that elephant in the room. Um, and that would really uh, make a mockery of the Constitution and the 14th Amendment's history. That was Amira Matar, counsel with the group Free Speech for People. Find more analysis of the Supreme Court's recent hearing in the Trump versus Anderson Colorado ballot disqualification case by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WAAA in Epson, New Hampshire, WHYR in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.